To him that loved us, gave himself, and died to do us good, has washed us from our scarlet sins in his most precious blood, who has made us kings and priests to God, his Father infinite. To him eternal glory be and everlasting might. If someone could start that, please. 147. Well, my subject this afternoon <clears throat> is priests, pastors, uh, ministers, bishops, not necessarily taken up in that order. It might seem an odd subject to take up for a young people's meeting, but I think it's one of those truths that uh, frequently talk about uh, addressed in reading meetings when we touch on certain portions of scripture, but rarely taken up as a whole. It's a big subject, and I will turn to many, many scriptures. I used to apologize for that. Robert Bullard here told me once, never apologize. If you can't keep up with all the scriptures, make take a note, write them down. But I don't have a memory that can just recall them. And I think it is so important that you understand that what we hold, what we seek to practice, though uh, in great weakness, 
is found in the Word of God. It's not something that we've made up. It's in the Word of God. So, priests. Let begin, let's begin with priests. And begin in uh, Exodus 19. This will be very broad brushstroke. Very quick through this. It's a big subject. I may not get through everything that I would like to get through. But we're going to have to just dive in and move right along. So, Exodus 19 and verse 6. Speaking of Israel, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And... Uh, Verse 7, Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lie, I come to thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and so on. In verse 12, speaking of Mount Sinai, Thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be a beast or man, it shall not live. So Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But we find that they readily put themselves under law. They sought to establish their own righteousness, not understanding the holiness of God and his righteous requirements. And as immediately they put themselves under law, then a bound was set. And they couldn't approach unto that mount, and if they did, they were to die. And we find that God in the Old Testament dwelt in thick darkness. And so in verse 21 of the next chapter, immediately after the giving of the law, that we read, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Let's turn to Numbers. Numbers chapter 3. And we find now that under law that Israel, instead of being a kingdom of priests, that Aaron and his sons were appointed to act as priests. So, Numbers chapter 3, verse 3, these are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests which were anointed, which he consecrated a minister in the priest's office. Verse 10, it says, Thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons, and thou shalt wait on their priest's office, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Well, things even got more restrictive. Let's go to Numbers 16. So again, to follow this train of thought, Israel were to be a kingdom of priests unto the Lord. We find they set themselves under law. Bounds were established. God dwelled in thick darkness. Aaron and his sons were appointed to be priests instead of that nation. And then in Leviticus 16, we find there, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat. The tabernacle had two parts to it. First was the holy place, and then we had the holiest of all. And we find now that the... Uh, entrance into the holiest of all was restricted to the high priest alone and that once a year. 
And in Hebrews 9, we have confirmation of that. Nadab and Abihu are the two sons that are mentioned here, though not named. And that occurs back in, I believe, Leviticus 11. They offered strange fire before the Lord. And uh, as a result, they died. Uh, Sorry, Leviticus 10. You could turn to it. We won't. The fire that was to burn the incense was to come, if I remember correctly, from the altar of the burnt offering. And they took strange fire. And uh, they, they lit their uh, incense. They said, what does it matter? And they died. I don't think we really appreciate the righteous and holy character of the God that with, with which we have to do. And yet, it's fully brought out here in the Old Testament in these, uh, Israel's history and the types and pictures that we have there. So what exactly was the priest's role? What is a priest? Uh, we mentioned that, uh, and you can start turn to Hebrews 5, we mentioned that Israel was to be a nation of priests, and that wasn't to be. The Aaron and his sons were chosen to serve in the priest's place. In Hebrews 5, verse 1, we have a good definition of what a priest is. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so if you were an Israelite and you wanted to offer a free will offering or you needed to offer a sin offering, you had to go to a priest. That uh, if you recall back there in Numbers, that if you went and attempted to do this on your own, you would die. And so the priest was that intermediary between man and God. And everything you did, you had to go do through a priest. You know, as I said, I, maybe uh, it seems strange to take up the subject at a young people's meeting. But we live in a world, uh, in, in Christendom, we're a part of it, where there's a whole numerous systems that men have established where if you want to approach unto God, you have to go through a priest that man has established. Let's turn now to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 51 We find in this chapter the Lord is on the cross. Let's uh, read just a little bit before verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we read verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That veil which separated the holy place from the holiest of all was rent by God from top to bottom, making the way open into the holy place. It was merely a physical uh, representation. There we get to Hebrews 10 in a minute. We'll find that it wasn't the means of it. It wasn't what allowed us, as it were, to enter the holy place, the renting of that veil. But it showed outwardly what God was doing there on the cross. 
Get hold of one thing. The cross changes everything. That is by and large not understood in Christianity. At least 80% of Christians believe that the church is now the Israel of old. The cross changes everything. By it, uh, Paul could say in Galatians, The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. With the death and resurrection and ascension in glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. We now no longer have an earthly sanctuary. Let me uh, not get ahead of myself. Let's start looking at some verses. First Timothy, chapter one, uh, First Timothy, chapter two. There is no longer now a mediator, a priesthood between us and God. My Bible is full of bookmarks and I'm going to probably have them all falling around my feet here shortly. Uh, They're just randomly placed, but as I flip through, they're falling out. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. To establish another mediator between us and God is an affront to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 24. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The earthly sanctuary that the tabernacle was was merely a figure of something that was heavenly. And to reestablish an earthly sanctuary again is a complete affront to what the work of the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Is to move back to being before the cross. Our sanctuary is a heavenly one. If you have a meeting room, perhaps it's a renter's space, perhaps it's not, perhaps you own it. But there is no sanctuary there. Where the table sits is not a sanctuary. And the bread and loaf that are upon it do not need a priest to go up there and to break it. And yet man has established all these things. He's established, as I said, in, in Greek Orthodoxy, in that whole system which includes all the Eastern Orthodox. In Roman Catholicism, they've established a priesthood that exists as a mediator between you and God. They've established sanctuaries in churches. Let's look at Hebrews 10. I said the rent veil itself wasn't the thing that gave us access into the holiest. Here we find out what actually gives us access into the holiest. I'll read from verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, And having a high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil consciences and our bodies washed with pure water. 
turn to Revelation chapter 1. What Israel was not, because they could not be, because they put themselves under law, not knowing the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own righteousness, we have become, in this sense, this is not replacement theology, so I need to be careful what I say. We're not the new Israel, or the Israel of this world, but let me read uh, Revelation 1 verse 6. And hath made us kings, or it should just read, it should read a kingdom, priests unto God and his Father. Did you know that you, if you're saved, you are a priest? You know, I, this is a teaching meeting. I understand that. But to me, the best meetings are those that combine both teaching and practical. We love the practical. It's like the children of Israel in the wilderness. We're like little birds with our mouth open saying, feed me now, feed me. And there's nothing wrong with being fed. And there's nothing wrong with practical ministry. But practical ministry has to be underpinned with sound teaching. Well, this is not just theoretical, abstract teaching either. You and I are priests. Do we exercise our priesthood? If we're priests, then we have gifts and sacrifices to offer. What are those gifts and those sacrifices? Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Incidentally, I didn't mention it just now, but that verse in Revelation that I read that said that we uh, made a, I'll read it from the New Translation, uh, has made us a kingdom, priest to God, is, uh, I understand, a taken straight from Exodus 19. It's a, an echo of the very words that are there, that expression. It's not merely me equating that with that, but those that understand Hebrew and understand Greek tell us that it is an echo of those words from Exodus 19. We are now made a kingdom, priests unto God. Now, uh, Hebrews 13, back to what sacrifices do we offer? Hebrews 13, verse 15. Well, let's begin with verse 13. I won't comment on it, but let's begin with verse 13. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And to do good and to communicate or fellowship, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In First Peter, we could have read of the holy priesthood and the royal priesthood. And we sort of have, not sort of, but we have the same distinction here. Those praises that go to God. Uh, and then also the fellowship or distribution. The, the, what we, uh, of our physical things. Uh, it's also a sacrifice. And with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In connection with, we naturally connect worship with priesthood. And I just want to mention in passing, 
though I will not take up the subject of worship, that in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. John 4 says that we worship in spirit and in truth. The Samaritans had a falsified and uh, adulterated copy of the Pentateuch, and they didn't have the truth. They neither worshipped in truth or in, certainly not in spirit. The Jews had the truth in that they had a revelation from God. So it couldn't be said that they didn't worship in truth if they followed what God had given them. But they certainly didn't worship in spirit. And man just loves the... Uh, um, the uh, I forget what word is used in Colossians, but... The tangible things. He likes robes. He likes ceremonies. He likes earthly sanctuaries. And he has gone back to those things that were given in Judaism. Our worship is in spirit and in truth. We do not need a priesthood, a mediator between us and God. We are a kingdom, priests to God. In the Old Testament, when uh, Israel was told in uh, Deuteronomy 26... And in Deuteronomy 26 and verse 2, it says, Thou shalt take of the fruit of all, the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. Verse 10, And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God. On Lord's Day morning, you might say, I don't feel much like a priest. I don't have much to offer. Well, have you been gathering a basketful during the week? What did, what did you do Saturday night before your head hit the pillow? If you watched a good movie, I guarantee you played that over and over in your head. And come Sunday morning, Lord's Day morning, a little surprised that you have not much to offer in terms of sacrifice. So are you and I exercising our priesthood? You know, it's easy to have someone do that for us. You know, I was just speaking earlier and I don't want to digress, but, you know, our laborers are few. It's nice to come to conference and just have a laborer take over. And that's not an accusation against the laborers, not at all. But it's easy to have someone take your responsibility and do it for you. It takes exercise to exercise your priesthood. It takes gathering throughout the week to have something to offer on the Lord's Day. Now let's change subject. We've spoken of priests. We have found that we are all priests. That to put a priesthood, a mediator between us and God is contrary to his word. And a slight a most serious slight upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 8. When he ascended up on high, he let captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
I want to speak especially on pastors and teachers. By the way, all these words that I mentioned at the beginning, priests, pastors, deacons, bishops, are all words that have been hijacked, as it were, in Christendom and have been given meanings that don't correspond to what we find in the Word of God. And uh, we have the word pastor in this verse, and we'll get to it in due course. But I just want to speak briefly on apostles. Well, before I do that, let's be very clear. We're now speaking of gift. You do not need a gift of priesthood. We are priests. That's not a gift. You say, well, I don't have the gift of priesthood. That's not scriptural. But here we are now speaking of gifts. When Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to his church, to the assembly. The assembly has not lacked in endowments. That's not been its problem. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. It's by that that we offer up worship, our sacrifice of praise. And it's by the Spirit that we minister our gifts as well. God has given each of us a gift, but here we have some particular gifts mentioning, abiding gifts. Uh, well, I'll qualify that. First of all, apostles. John, you don't need to turn to this verse. This verse is, I'm merely going to read it to explain what the word apostle means. Uh, John 13:16 says... Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. He that is sent is apostolos, apostle. An apostle is merely a sent one. I say merely. I don't want to diminish their role and importance. But an apostle was a sent one. I said this morning in the reading meeting there were many more disciples than the twelve. Maybe not thousands, but there were many more disciples than the twelve. But there are only uh, the 11 apostles and then in Acts chapter 1, after Judas uh, betrayed the Lord, we find one appointed in his place, Matthias. And when they appointed Matthias, it's uh, worthwhile looking at. They didn't just decide, oh, there's only 11 of us now, we need to appoint an extra one. They turned to the scriptures. And Acts 1, verse 20 says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. And so they sought out two, and there was a certain qualification. Verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in out among us, from the baptism of John until that same day he was taken up from us, must one be, and the word ordained is not present in the, in the Greek, a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed or chose two, Joseph and Barnabas, who was surnamed Justice, sorry, yeah, Joseph called Barnabas, Barsabas, who surnamed Justice, and Matthias. In verse 26, they chose lots, they gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The, the, the things I want to bring out in this verse, was, are, this portion, are one, qualification of the apostle was that they had seen the Lord. Two, even though the men here chose two, 
they used lots. In other words, they left it to God's choosing as to who the individual would be and that lot fell upon Matthias. With the coming of the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, we never again ever read of the church using lots to choose anyone, ever. Paul's apostleship was a little different. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15. But the qualification was essentially the same. Paul could say in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, After that he was seen of James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me, also as one born out of due time. And if you turn to the beginning of Galatians, we find there that Paul emphasizes that his apostleship was not of men. Galatians 1.1 1, 1, Paul an apostle not of men, neither of man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. His source was not men and his means was not men. It is impossible, scripturally, for men to establish apostles. An apostle was one that had seen the Lord. Paul uh, also fit that qualification. There are no one in this world left today that have seen the Lord. There are no apostles in this day. Ephesians chapter 3. Oh, sorry, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. I won't re- I'll just read one verse. It's really out of context. But, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles were established at the beginning of the church and they were never replaced. You could turn to all the second epistles. I'll turn right now to Second Peter and uh, read in... Um, Chapter 3, verse 2, Peter says, That ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He doesn't give any instruction here to listen to the apostles that will come next. There is no uh, scripture to, as I said just now, to... uh, allow men to establish apostles in the stead of those that were established at the founding of the church. They laid the foundation. No other, there's no other foundation to be laid. It's done. The apostles have left the scene. You might say, well, yeah. But you know, the Roman Catholic Church essentially has established apostles. They do not believe that the apostles, those twelve, the apostle Paul, when they left the scene, that was the end of uh, apostolic authority, apostolic uh, scripture by inspiration of God. The Pope, to this day, has declared that certain times when he writes that his writings are infallible. Now, it's often quoted by evangelicals that the Pope words are always infallible. That's not, that's not true. They don't say that. But they do say there are certain times and certain writings, just like we could say, well, the Apostle Paul wrote other epistles that are not in the Word of God. There are some that are inspired and, and some that weren't. 
And they would say, well, there are some things that the Pope writes that are uh, um, infallible, essentially inspired. They essentially believe in apostolic succession. But there are no more apostles. When it comes to prophecy, I would suggest that likewise there are no more prophets in the sense of those that establish the prophetic scripture that like we find at the end of Romans, but there is certainly a gift of prophecy and we have that in 1 Corinthians 14. I'll just read a couple of verses there. 1 Corinthians 14. And it says in verse 1, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. Verse 3, He that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. I would suggest that prophecy is by and large misunderstood. We always think of prophecy in terms of foretelling events. I would suggest that even in the Old Testament, the first reason the prophet spoke was to speak to the conscience of the people. The foretelling of future events came in because of the failure that existed. And God waits until there's failure. And then he tells them what's going to come next. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the promise of that was the subject of prophecy. But the prophets, are even in the Old Testament, look at Haggai. He was raised up to speak to the conscience of the people. You can turn to other prophets and you can see that they are, uh, the, those books of the Old Testament are filled with far more uh, prophetic uh, foretelling of events than, say, Haggai. I, I picked one that you could say, well, you picked Haggai, of course. But even if you turn, look at Jeremiah. I've been going through Jeremiah myself recently. Over and over again, his word is to the conscience of the people and it's only because they wouldn't listen that God brings in what was going to happen both to them and what he would bring in uh, that would supersede. Now, back in Ephesians 4, we spoke of apostles. They are no more on the scene. Uh, Any any uh, apostles that exist to this day, and I take that... uh, Include the Pope in that also is a, a complete um, fabrication, has no basis in the Word of God whatsoever. One other thing about the Pope, he is titled the Vicar of Christ. And you may have heard that word vicar used, it's used in the Church of England for the parish priest, for the, again, uh, something that is unscriptural. But that word vicar means a deputy. And so the, the, the Pope is, by his very title, set up to be a mediator between Christ and man. He is supposedly Christ's representative here in this world. Ephesians 4 again, we spoke briefly of apostles and prophets. And then it says, some evangelists, some pastors and some teachers. Now we're getting down to what Christendom calls evangelicals. They don't have priests. They don't have apostles. They don't claim to apostolic succession. They don't have prophets in the sense of uh, men that we would call prophets, though they would recognize or at least claim to recognize prophetic ministry, which is merely taking God's word and making it good to the conscience of the people like the prophets of old. Evangelists, I won't speak a lot of evangelists because I think there is one 
that's one area where there's very similar agreement, at least in what an evangelist is. Evangelist spreads the gospel. Uh, in Greek, the word for evangelist is euangelion. And I, the, the word for gospel is uh, uh, very similar. And it's really just the one that gives the, uh, one that, the teller of good news is evangelist, and gospel means good news. The word gospel is an old English word. Good spell is really what it means. That sounds terrible, but English is a language that has... It's the only thing that does evolve is language. It's the only thing that evolves. Um, and the word good has come to us in the, down to us. We still use the word good in English. The word spell has come down to us meaning something quite different. But it, a past day, it simply meant news. So, again, just to repeat, an evangelist is the one that spreads the good news. And there is a gift of evangelism, and I think we know of individuals that had the gift of evangelism. I would suggest that Timothy did not have the gift of evangelism. I recently put together a little book about Timothy. I, Timothy's life speaks to me. He was a timid man. He was an anxious man. I don't say I had these good qualities, but I certainly got all his bad qualities um, if you could call them bad if they come from God I don't think we can call them bad but Timothy could still do the work of the evangelist and so you and I we may not have the gift of evangelism but it doesn't mean to say that we can opt out of doing the work of the evangelist and that's in 2 Timothy 4 chapter, uh, verse 5 First Peter in chapter 3, verse 15, it says there that we uh, should be ready. Well, let's just turn to that verse. First Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Most of the difficulty we have with evangelism is approaching people. I'm naturally a shy person. I'm not very good at approaching people, least of all strangers. But can't we all give an answer of the hope that lies within us? But we won't be able to if we've not sanctified the Lord God in our hearts. If our hearts are so full of everything else, then we're going to be embarrassed to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. Pastors and teachers. Back to Ephesians 4. I believe that scripture deliberately links these two. It doesn't say and some pastors and some teachers. It says and some pastors and teachers. That's uh, Ephesians 4 verse 11. And, uh, and some pastors and teachers. Sorry. What is a pastor? The man that stands up in front of the church and uh, watches over his flock and ministers every Lord's Day and preaches a sermon. The word pastor simply means shepherd. And yet men have taken these positions and have promoted them to a position of uh, distinction. When I say a pastor is simply a shepherd, I don't want to diminish the role of the shepherd. We had something of the shepherd this morning. 
And the shepherd's role is exceedingly important in the assembly. And notice that shepherd, the pastor, comes first. I said earlier that pastor and teacher seems to be linked in this verse, and that's not my thought. And that is because I don't believe that being a shepherd, you can be a shepherd if you're not well grounded in the truth, if you're not prepared to teach. On the other hand, you can't be a teacher unless you have something of the shepherd's heart. Because you'll just come across as dry and cold. I think we've, and I'll get to teachers in a minute, but I think we all recall teachers, I hope you do at least, if you went to a public school, uh, recall one or two teachers with certain fondness. And think back, why was that? It's because you knew they cared for you individually. And probably every person in the classroom felt the same way. A good teacher has a shepherd's heart. But back to a shepherd, uh, we had it this morning in uh, Ezekiel 34. I just want to read a couple of verses from there because I think, unlike what Christendom has made a pastor into, the pastor's role is a, a very important one and there are certain things that characterize what he does. So in Ezekiel 34, we really find out the shepherds of Israel had failed terribly. But from verse 11 down to verse 15, we find various characteristics of the shepherd and especially speaks of the Lord Jesus himself. And I have to credit, I, I don't mean that in the way the world uh, uses that expression, but our brother John Billiselli, he spoke on this in the assembly in Denver uh, a month or two ago. But I'll just quickly go through them and not read all these verses, but Ezekiel 34, verse 11, it says, I will search my sheep. That's what a shepherd does. He searches out the sheep. It says, seek them out. The new translation says, tendeth the flock. So he searches for them, he tendeth the flock. Verse 12, it says, we'll deliver them out of all places. He brings them back. And that's what we've been seeing in the chapter we're reading of in Luke. Verse 13 uh, brings it out further. Gather them. Not only will deliver them, but he gathers them. doesn't just deliver them and leave them where they're at. He gathers them. And then it says, bring them to their own land. In verse 14, he feeds them. He doesn't just bring them in. He feeds them. And then in verse 15, it says, I will cause them to lie down. Cause them to lie down. You know, Peter was uh, especially commissioned by the Lord to shepherd the sheep. At his restoration, we don't have time to turn to that. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, we shouldn't be surprised that Peter returns back or returns or goes to this subject of shepherds. And we're going to read this again if we still have time because there's something else I want to bring out this portion. But First Peter, last chapter, Peter exhorts the elders. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort whom am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God. There we have it again. The shepherd feeds which is among you taking the oversight. He takes oversight not by constraint, not compelled to do it, but willingly or readily, he, he has a heart for the sheep, not for filthy lucre. He's not doing it for money. He's not doing it for reimbursement. What pastors uh, 
established by men. They're not they're doing their job not for money. I'm not saying, and I want to be just, I'm not saying that they're motivated by money. But nowhere here do we find a pastor that's established that's going to be paid. It says, neither is being lords over God's heritage. Not established over and above them. But that's exactly what pastors and churches are. They're established as lords. But being in samples or examples to the flock. Now we have to move on. Teachers. James chapter 3. James chapter 3 begins, My brethren, be not many masters. It should read teachers. My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Naturally speaking, we are good at teaching. We love telling people what to do. And James says, be careful, because you're going to be judged by what you teach. Again, as I said, A good teacher is going to have a shepherd's heart. He's going to know when to pour in the oil, which soothes, or the wine. You ever had wine on a a cut, like alcohol on a cut? It will sting. Uh, The same chapter in James, verse 13, says, Who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? You think you've got something to teach? Let him show out of a good conversation or could conduct his words with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For envying and strife is there is confusion in every evil work. Striving between teachers will bring nothing but confusion to the assembly. And we see that in Corinthians. The Corinthian assembly was full of those that just thought they had what it took to be a teacher. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 15, it says, For though we have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And I just want to read a verse in 1 Corinthians 8 before I comment. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, uh, at the end of the verse, knowledge puffeth up. For these reasons, teaching has got something of a bad rap. Now incidentally, when Paul says to the Corinthians, you have 10,000 instructors, he doesn't use the word for teacher. He uses the word for a child raiser. It turns out that the Corinthians needed teachers. They didn't have them. They just thought they were teachers. Knowledge for knowledge's sake just puffs up. And as I said, for these reasons, teaching has got something of a bad rap. Doctrine has got doctrine just means teaching has got something of a bad rap. But let's see what the Word of God has to say about teaching. Let's turn to First Timothy, chapter four. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. These things command and teach. Verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. That is to say, teaching. And the reading here is not per- Timothy's personal reading, 
but publicly, public reading. Timothy was to teach. He may not have had the evangelists, uh, the gift of evangelism, but he had a gift of exposition. I believe he could teach, and we're told that that he was not to neglect the gift that was within that was in him. He had a gift, and that gift uh, seemed to be connected with teaching and exposition. And in Second Timothy, again, the importance of teaching is brought out because in Second Timothy two verse two it says. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Teaching young people is essential. And you may say, I come from a very small assembly and there is no teachers in my assembly. That may well be true. But there is a table full of teaching over here by men that God gifted to the assembly. Their ministry is recorded. I drive to and from work and I've later, I haven't always done it, but I've later been listening to recordings of ministry. You have ready access like never before to sound teaching. If you don't have sound teaching, you're going to be like those that are mentioned in Ephesians 4, a little further down, where it says in verse 14 of the fourth chapter, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness wherein they lie in wait to deceive. We'll just be blown. You know, again, everything is accessible today. Recently I was put on an email thread that uh, uh, some were concerned about the preoccupation of some of our young people with uh, apologetics. I'm probably not so negative towards that, but their concerns expressed in the emails are certainly valid. I think that apologetics is something that young men in particular seem to take up. And there's a period in their life where I believe it serves a purpose. And if that's your entrance into the Word of God, I don't discourage you. But if you turn to apologetics that you will hear on YouTube And elsewhere, be aware, you will not have to go far before you'll find error. And you won't know that it's error unless you're well grounded in the truth. The big one is free will, but I won't digress. They all get free will wrong. You need to be grounded in the Word of God. Teaching is important. And, you know, I've sometimes heard it suggested that we shouldn't read ministry and then come along to the reading meeting and share what we've enjoyed. I disagree. If I read before I come to the reading meeting and just regurgitate what I've heard, no, that won't go down very well. But if you read the scriptures, read ministry, and you come and share something you've enjoyed, that will be the the blessing, not only of yourself, but to your brethren. You know, it says, and we'll get to that shortly, I've got a few minutes left, of elders that they were apt to teach. It didn't mean they had the gift of teaching. In Titus, when Titus chose elders, he was to choose those that were grounded in the Word of God because they needed to refute the gainsayers. They needed to be grounded in the Word. didn't mean they had the gift of teaching. And so you may not have the gift of teaching, but you can share things that you have truly learnt and enjoyed with your brethren. There is nothing wrong with that. And so we'll move on to elders, bishops, and deacons in the last few minutes. 
Just uh, turning to First Corinthians, First uh, Peter, last chapter again, and I won't read it for the sake of time because we just read it. First Peter, chapter five. It says, "The elders which are among you, hold on to that word, elder." And then in verse two, feed. That word is simply shepherd, pastor. Doesn't mean anything more grand than that which is among you, taking the oversight. That's the next word I want you to hold on to. Elder, oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage. Another word. In the Greek, the word for elder is presbyteros. Ever heard of the Presbyterian church? The word for oversight is episcopeo. Ever heard of the Episcopalian church? The word for heritage is kleros. Ever heard of clergy? Those three words have been taken from this portion and elevated into something that's completely unrecognizable. The presbytery were merely the elders. Elders were those that had spiritual maturity. Their responsibility, what they did, was oversight. We'll see that in Titus shortly. So the elders, the presbyteros, exercised oversight, episcopal. Nothing to do with an episcopalian system of church government. Nothing to do with a presbyterian system of church government whatsoever. And then these had a responsibility uh, over not... um, I'll read it from the New Translation. It says um, in verse 3, "...not lording it over your possessions." or your heritage, but being models for the flock. Earlier it spoke of being a shepherd to the flock of God. The minister, even in the evangelical church, the pastor will speak of his flock. It's not his flock at all. It's the flock of God. And yet men have set up a clerical system of even in evangelical churches, of pastor, and in some churches there will be multiple pastors between the laity and God. None of it is from the word of God. You notice in the next verse it says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Men love glory. They love titles. They love recognition. These positions of being a shepherd, of being an elder, of having oversight, though they were to be recognized and acknowledged in the assembly, were not positions of glory. They will receive their glory for faithfully carrying out the work that God has given them. In uh, Titus, we certainly find when it comes to elders that they were appointed by apostles and by those delegated by the apostles. But we find no instruction in the word of God for the appointment of either elders or, as we get to this shortly, deacons by men or by the church. So in Titus we read there in uh, verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, ordained elders in every city as I appointed thee. Verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. It should just say for an overseer. An elder is what he is, an oversight is what he does. An elder and an overseer were one and the same. An elder and a bishop is one and the same. You might ask, why does our scriptures use the word bishop? It just literally, it comes from the Greek, episkopaios. It's untranslated Greek. It's not an exalted position that men have made it. 
Bishops were appointed in every city. And yet in the Episcopalian system, it's known for its hierarchy. And believe it or not, if you look up Titus in Wikipedia, it will tell you he was the first bishop of Crete. Men in hindsight established this hierarchy of bishops. No, Titus was told to appoint bishops in every city. In Philippians, and I would suggest that having... and, and Again, our time is so short, I, I don't have time to go into it. By city, it's because there was only one church in each city. There wasn't three churches or whatever. There was one church, one assembly, and Titus was to appoint elders in each city. And we find in Philippians there that Paul, it's the first verse of the first chapter, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, plural, and deacons, plural. They, there are many, or number, or multiple at least, in each assembly. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a true, in verse first, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And a little later in the chapter, verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, and so on. This uh, verse that I just read in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it mentions office. And we often speak of office. Technically, that word does not appear here in the Greek. It's not there at all. The word office does appear in Scripture once, and it's in Romans 12. But in this case, out of habit, I'll just make this distinction between office and gift. The bishops and deacons were established in each assembly. As I said initially, the apostles appointed them in certain cases. I believe it was necessary in Crete because things were in such disorder. There were multiple elders, overseers, bishops, in the assembly. They were local in their function. Each city. You didn't have a bishop of Crete. There was no such thing as a bishop of Crete. That's something that Eusebius made up afterwards and he wrote the history of the church that Titus was the first bishop of Crete and you'll find that it said that Timothy was the first bishop of Ephesus. It's all nonsense. Something that men in hindsight created to establish, to justify the system's that they had created in the churches. So office is local. The gifts that we spoke of earlier were for the building up, for the edifying of the body of Christ. They, we find in, in the book of Acts, the apostles, they travelled around. Their gift wasn't local. It wasn't one pastor over an assembly exercising his uh, gift, as it were, just in that locality. They travelled. So office is local, gift is for the edifying of the body. I had mentioned deacons and I see we're out of time. The word deacon is uh, from the Greek diakonos. And uh, the word literally means servant. That's all. Servant. And every other place in the New Testament where that word is translated, is translated either servant or minister. Churches have ministers. But again, what was a minister in a church? Merely a servant, not a position of elevation. In uh, 1 Corinthians, I don't have to turn to this, 16, 
verse 15, it says, I beseech you, brethren, that you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry or service of the saints, diakonos. They were, as it were, deacons. Again, we're short on, uh, have no more time. I just want to make one more comment. Uh, I, I want to read one more verse in Acts 20. When Paul was returning back to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey, he stopped at Miletus and called for the elders of Ephesus, those that had the responsibility of oversight there. And we read in Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, not over, but in the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. There's something underlying everything I've spoken on that I haven't really had an opportunity to emphasize. Worship, it's in the Spirit. But even when it comes to the exercise of gifts, we find that it's by the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the selection of elders at Ephesus, it was by the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 7, when Peter spoke to the Sanhedrin, he says there that ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. And nothing has changed when we move from Israel There the Holy Spirit was acting. They didn't indwell individuals in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit didn't indwell individuals in the Old Testament. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit uh, worked, as it were, with men in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The church is the habitation of God by the Holy Spirit. And just as men in the Old Testament resisted the Holy Spirit, so men today resist the Holy Spirit. To establish a clergy is, as Mr. Darby said, a sin against the Holy Spirit in this present dispensation. It's to substitute his work. To have a priest that worships in your place is to replace the Holy Spirit. To have a worship minister in an evangelical church is to replace the function of the Holy Spirit. It is an affront to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ there at Calvary. Our God and Father, 